We've been working our way through John's gospel, and we come this morning to one of the highlights of the book, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We're going to be looking at John chapter 19, starting in verse 23, and we'll read through verse 42, the last verse of the chapter. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. This testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is God's word. Let's go to him now in prayer. O oh Lord our God, we pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding to understand your word. I pray, Lord, that you would meet us wherever we are this morning, 
that you would show us the beauty of your death on the cross, that in you, in your death, we might have life, that we might have abundant life here and now and everlasting life in the life to come. Lord, until that day, strengthen us by your Spirit and do so using your word. For we ask you in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you remember where you were on January 7th, 1941? Now, that was 83 years ago, so I'm guessing that most of you were not alive to remember the day that the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Frank, I'm doing all my best not to look you in the eye during this part of the sermon. He was on duty that day. No, I'm just kidding. How many of you remember where you were on November 22nd, 1963? That was the day, many of you know, that President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. How many of you remember where you were on July 20th, 1969? That's the day that Neil Armstrong took one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind by becoming the very first person to walk on the surface of the moon. How many of you remember where you were on January 28th, 1986? I was nine years old the morning that the Challenger exploded. I was getting a, a haircut with my dad. He took me out of school, and we, we watched it, the launch and the disaster, live on TV. I'll never forget it. How many of you remember where you were on the morning of September 11th, 2001? I was living in New York City that day in Manhattan, and I saw the attack happen on New York One News in my apartment uh, on the Upper West Side. I'll never forget it. How many of you remember the financial collapse that happened in 2008? How many of you remember the COVID lockdowns of 2020? I'm still trying to forget. How many of you remember where you were when the Chiefs beat the 49ers in Super Bowl 58? Kate and I were at Mercer and Jean's house. Unfortunately, we left during the first half before it got good there at the end. Life is filled with memorable moments, important days in world history, days that we all remember, and important days in our personal history, birthdays and anniversaries and baptisms, first steps and first bike rides, the first time that we handed our 16-year-old the keys to the car and said, be home by nine. Forgetting to specify that we met 9 p.m. that day. I'm sure it was an honest mistake. We remember the highlights and the lowlights, the triumphs and the tragedies, and occasionally the everyday, ordinary days in between. I say occasionally because if you put me under oath and asked me what I had for lunch on Tuesday, I could not tell you. But if you asked me what I had for dinner on Wednesday, I would tell you that I was sharing a Valentine's meal with the three most important people in my life, Kate and Lily and Jack. 
Christians are, like the ancient people of Israel, people who remember. In Psalm 143, verse 5, we read, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that God has done. I ponder the work of his hands. In Luke 22, verse 19, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember who God is. We remember who we are. We remember where we started, the Garden of Eden. And we remember where we're going, the New Jerusalem, the Garden City of God. This morning, we're going to spend some time meditating on what God has done by remembering one of the most important days in all of human history, the day that Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the King of Kings, suffered and died on a Roman cross before being buried in a rich man's tomb. The day that Jesus died, what is in many ways a a tragic day. It was the day in which they, and in a sense we, as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, crucified our Lord. But it was also a triumphant day. A day that we call Good Friday because of everything that Jesus accomplished for us in the moments before, during, and after his death on the cross. In many ways, the cross of Christ is the center point of all human history. As the great Puritan John Owen wrote, there is no death of sin without the death of Christ. I would add to that saying that there is no church without the death of Christ. There is no joy without the death of Christ. There is no hope without the death of Christ. There is no forgiveness without the death of Christ. There is no life without the death of Jesus Christ. He came to destroy death forever. We simply cannot overstate the importance of the things that John describes in this chapter. And so if you're taking notes, here's our outline. As we remember the cross of Christ, I really want to focus in asking one big question. Why did Jesus die on the cross? I came up with five answers from this story alone. First, he died to clothe us. Second, he died to make us a family. Third, he died to quench our thirst. Fourth, he died to give us his Holy Spirit. And fifth, he died to rewrite our stories. Why did Jesus die on the cross? One big question, five answers. Let's take a closer look. The first answer is this. Jesus died on the cross in order to clothe us. Verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. 
But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Now, think two things to note about this scene. First, in the ancient world, people were crucified without clothing. That was a, a way to humiliate them as they were dying. It's sort of like adding insult to injury. Oftentimes in battle, when a victorious army would conquer and take captives among the leaders of the foreign army, they would even parade them naked through the streets, again, in order to shame them and expose them for all to see. Second, most people in the ancient world wore five articles of clothing, as Jesus did here. They wore sandals on their feet, a turban on their head, a belt around their waist, an outer coat, and then a tunic, which was an undergarment that was worn closest to the skin. Since there were four guards and five articles of clothing, the Roman guards could either cut that seamless tunic into four different pieces and divide the pieces amongst themselves, or they could cast lots for the whole thing. Casting lots is a little bit like rolling dice or, or flipping coins. It's a way of deciding something by seemingly by chance, by random occurrence. Now, in this case, the whole was worth more than the sum of the parts, so they cast lots for it to see who would take it home, either to keep or, more likely, to sell it in a local bazaar or a marketplace. Now, perhaps more than anything else in this scene, this represents what Hannah Arndt called the banality of evil. Is there anything more banal, anything more drearily commonplace than the soldiers dividing up Jesus' clothing at the foot of the cross? Jesus is there. He is suffering and dying, the Son of God, an innocent man. And as he died, as he he gasped for breath, feeling the pressure of the nails which had pierced his hands and his feet, These Roman soldiers haggled for his last possessions on earth. Meager possessions, which they divided among themselves. Now, why did they do this? What does this mean? Why was Jesus unclothed at the moment of his death? Well, John hints at a deeper meaning, and he does this throughout the passage, by pointing out that this happened to fulfill the scripture. In this case, Psalm 22, verse 18 Here it is, and I'm going to back up to read, starting at verse 16. The psalmist writes, 1,000 years before this happened, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. That literally happened. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, the soldiers obviously had no knowledge at all of the Hebrew Scriptures. They had no idea that they were fulfilling the Hebrew Scriptures, but look at what they did. Look at the irony of this. On the cross, Jesus was humiliated. 
so that we might be honored. He was stripped naked so that we might be clothed in his perfect righteousness. This scene represents what Martin Luther called the great exchange. Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Every one of us have experienced shame in our lives. Some of us feel shame when we look in the mirror. (laughs) We see wrinkles and lines and a few extra pounds. And we think about famous actors and actresses and athletes. And we think, how can I go outside looking like this? (laughs) If only I looked more like them. If only I, I wasn't aging. If only I wasn't becoming my father or my mother as I look into the mirror. We all feel that. Some of us feel shame because of abuse. We remember shameful things that were done to us, and we feel worthless. We feel dirty and small and helpless and weak. Some of us are ashamed of being ashamed. We feel shamed, and we think, why do I feel like this? I'm the only one. Everyone else can get over it. Why can't I get over it? Why can't I get past this? Shame has a way of isolating us. We were created for community, for withness, withness with God, and withness from one another, and shame has the power of destroying the withness that we are meant to experience as image bearers of God. The question is, where do we go when we feel shame? Do we hide from the real world behind a screen? Do we disconnect and disassociate from other people? That's sometimes what I do, if I'm honest. Do we try to clothe ourselves with money and power and success? Do we have to drive the best car? Do we have to live in the nicest house? Do we have to have the best grades? Do we have to pastor the biggest church in the whole state of Florida? Where do we go when we feel small? Where do we go when we feel helpless? Where do we go when we feel weak? Well, the message of the cross is that only Jesus can cover our shame. Only Jesus can clothe us with perfect righteousness. Only Jesus can say, your life matters. Your life matters because you're a son or a daughter of the King. This morning, Jesus is offering you His honor. He's offering you His glory. Psalm 34, verse 5, Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Never. Jesus died on the cross to clothe us. In righteousness, in holiness, in love, unconditional love. That's the first answer. That's why Jesus died on the cross. Second answer is this. Jesus died on the cross in order to make us a family. 
Verse 25, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, again he's talking about John who wrote this gospel, he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple, John, took her to his own home. This week as I was studying this passage, I read and reread this passage, and, and tears just flowed down my eyes. It was it's such an emotional story of what Jesus did here. This is one of the most beautiful scenes in the whole Bible. Jesus is suffering. Jesus is dying. He's literally suffocating to death. He looks down from the cross. He sees his mother Mary, the only person in his family left other than Joseph. Joseph has probably died by this point in the story. She's the only person living who believed in him from day one. At this point in the story, his brothers and sisters don't believe in him. He's known the disciples for three years, and at this point in the story, they've all abandoned him except for John. Peter, you'll remember, infamously denied him three times, saying, I don't know him. I don't have anything to do with him. I'm not with him at all. And so here he is, and he sees his mother, and he says, woman, behold your son. Jesus loved his mom. Now, the word that we translate woman from the Greek is very hard to translate into English because it almost sounds disrespectful. Most of us don't call our mothers woman. That's sort of an odd thing to say. But the Greek word gune really could be translated dear woman or or sweet woman. This is Jesus' way of saying, I love you, mom. Even though your heart is breaking, I still love you. And John, my best friend, is going to take care of you. Don't be worried. Don't be afraid. You're not alone. Now, what does this mean for us? I think it means, I think John is telling us that Jesus died in order to make us a family. Jesus takes two people, two people who are kind of distantly related, an aunt and a nephew, not the closest relationship in the world, especially if you're from a big family with many children. You may have many, many nephews or many, many aunts. And Jesus says, behold your mother. Behold your son. When we become Christians, the love that we experience in our church family can be and often is deeper and more profound than the love that we experience within our own natural families. I want you to look around, younger people. Look around. The people that are sitting next to you are your spiritual fathers and mothers. Learn from them. Listen to them. Honor them as you would your own natural parents. Older people, look around. The young people who are sitting next to you on your row are your spiritual sons and daughters. Love them. Teach them. Disciple them. Model holiness to them. Pray for them. They are your spiritual children, and their children are your spiritual grandchildren. Why? 
because the cross makes us a family. Behold your mother. Behold your son. Third answer, Jesus died on the cross to quench our thirst. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, there's that phrase again, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. In his book, The Last Words of Jesus, Stu Epperson Jr. points out that everyone in this story was thirsting for something. I think it's a good point. He writes, Judas Iscariot thirsted for money. Herod thirsted for power. Pilate thirsted for appeasement. The mob thirsted for blood. The soldiers thirsted for sport. The religious leaders thirsted for vengeance. And so as we read this story, I think it's appropriate for us to ask, what am I searching for? What are you searching for? What do you want? Validation at work, relaxation at home, communication in your marriage, financial peace and freedom. Do you just want to pay off those stupid student loans you took out when you were 18 years old? Do you want a one-way ticket to Margaritaville? Do you want to just check out and chillax for the rest of your life? Retire? Don't talk to anyone? Just sit there on the beach collecting seashells or stones or whatever it is you want to do out there, right? Many of us do. When we thirst, the world offers us sour wine on a stick. And Jesus offers us living water. The water of everlasting life. The cup of the new covenant in his blood. In John 6 verse 35, Jesus said to them, Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 4.13, Jesus said to the woman at the well, Everyone who drinks of this water, ordinary water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What do you want? Are you thirsting this morning? Jesus comes to die on the cross to quench our thirst forever and ever. Fourth answer, Jesus died on the cross to give us the Holy Spirit. Verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. When Jesus died, his soul, his human spirit, left his human body. That's, that will happen to us, all of us, when we die. When we die, our soul immediately leaves our body. If you're a Christian and you're trusting in Jesus for your salvation, if Jesus is your Lord and your Savior and your King, then your soul will go where Jesus' soul went, to heaven to be with the Lord in his presence Forever and ever. Remember what Jesus told the thief on the cross. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. 
paradise. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you don't believe that Jesus is your Savior, if you don't believe that Jesus is your King, if you don't believe that you need a Savior, if you believe the myth that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, and you're one of the good people, so obviously you know where you're going, then you will be very surprised the moment your soul leaves your body because your soul will not go to heaven. Your soul will go to hell, a place that you do not want your soul to go. Now again, where did Jesus' spirit go? He said to the thief in the cross, today you will be with me in paradise so that we know his soul went to paradise with God in heaven. Now again, Why does John give us this detail? Why did he, in the words of the old King James, give up the ghost? Why did he give up his spirit? I think he's anticipating the gift of the Holy Spirit, which would be poured out on the church after his death, after his resurrection, and after his ascension to the right hand of God. I think he's hinting at what Jesus told the disciples in John chapter 16 when he said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of wisdom. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of joy and peace and love and hope. Jesus gave up his Holy Spirit on the cross in order to give us his Holy Spirit, the living presence of God. That means, remarkably, that all of us, if you believe in Jesus, are closer to Jesus than the people who gathered around him at the foot of the cross. They were with Jesus physically. He is with us spiritually through his Holy Spirit. That's good news. Fifth answer, last one. Jesus died on the cross to rewrite our stories. Verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. After these things, after Jesus died on the cross, after he said, it is finished, after the soldiers pierced his side and a mixture of blood and water poured out onto the ground, affirming and confirming that Jesus really did die on the cross, after these things, we expect to hear a story about Peter and James and John, who are three of Jesus' closest disciples. We expect to hear a story about Mary and Martha and Lazarus, three of his best friends. Maybe we expect to hear a story about some of the women. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and her sister, and uh, Clopas, and the others, but we don't find them either. Instead, we find two people, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. 
Now, Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple of Jesus. He was part of the group of religious leaders who condemned Jesus to death before handing him over to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. Nicodemus is someone we met all the way back in John chapter 3. He came to Jesus at night and asked him about the kingdom of God. Jesus famously said to him, you must be born again. And Nicodemus famously said, what? (laughs) What are you even talking about? And Jesus famously responded, I think you heard me. And then Nicodemus went MIA for the next 16 chapters. And here he is, back again. These two guys are back, burying Jesus. So awesome. What happened? Jesus rewrote their stories. Jesus changed their lives. They were the least likely people in all of Jerusalem to find themselves burying the Son of God. And here they are, risking their lives to ask for Jesus' body, showing him devotion by giving him a proper burial. My friends, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, it is never too late. Jesus can and Jesus will rewrite your story. It's never too late to be born again. Just ask Joseph and Nicodemus. He gets us and he saves us and he changes us. I think if Jesus were to buy a Super Bowl commercial, he'd put these two guys in the commercial. (laughs) He'd say, if anyone can be saved, it's these guys. I saved them. So there's hope for all of us. Jesus' worst day, his day on the cross, is our best day. And really, that's what this meal is all about. As we come to the table, we remember what Jesus did for us. He, He clothed us. He adopted us, making us part of his family. He quenches our thirst. He gave us his Holy Spirit, and he rewrote our stories. The old spiritual asks, were you there when they crucified our Lord? The good news of the gospel is, he was there for you. Let's go to him now in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for us. We thank you that through his blood we are forgiven We thank you that through his blood, we are totally cleansed. We thank you, Lord, for the hope we have because of him. Lord, would you press that that hope deep onto our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Lord, yes, convict us of sin, absolutely. But also, remind us that we have been forgiven through you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the hope that we have through those three simple words, It is finished. I pray, Lord God, that you'd remind us that every day. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.